Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Do you believe it? But in the end, well, I'd like to believe that we don't have to wait to the end. We want to be experiencing that love wins on a regular basis. So welcome everybody. Um, it's good to have you all here. Smile. Yay. Um, I thought it was interesting that the topic that we had last week about what uh, remains uh, un uh, unexposed uh, remains unhealed. And then I don't know whether you've seen the bit of the hoo-ha that's gone on with Liam Neeson this week, um, where he sort of admitted something um, that he, had, he didn't actually do anything, but it was in his mind. And he was on a TV programme and he mentioned it. And of course, there's been a lot of backlash. And uh, it just shows that number one, we're scratching where it itches. Because I always find that things crop up that confirm what we're talking about here at Q. But also it uh, reinforced the fact that you can see why people keep quiet. Because things that need to come out in the open and be healed for their own sake unfortunately can create uh, more trouble and then, you know, you're wishing you never had done. So, you know, I just trust that uh, in, in the spirit of, and I trust that it was of a genuine needing to be open about something, that it'll, it'll all turn out good for him and love will win in this situation. So, uh, this week, uh, with love being in the air, with Valentine's Day coming Thursday, we thought that we would tackle the whole issue of love wins. And uh, it's become a bit of a cliche over the last few years. No doubt you've heard it said. You might use it yourself. But when it all comes down to it, do you ever really think about what it means? You know, things can roll off the tongue so easily. Uh, and strap lines seem a good idea, but on examination, do they stand up to scrutiny? So, should the word love ever be put in the same sentence as the word win? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Winning and losing suggests competition, a game where success and failure are the possibilities depending on strategy played. And many have said and sung that love is actually a losing game, not a winning game. So, is this true? So, tonight we're going to be asking the question, does love win? And if so, what does it win? And if love wins, how does it win? Does it mean something has to lose? Does love always win? And is it winning for me in my life right now? Or does it only apply as it does in the ending of fairy tales? And so they lived happily ever after. The baddie defeated and the hero putting everything right that was wrong at the end of time. So there are many instances where we observe and could rightly say that love isn't winning here. We look at wars, we look at struggles and we say that, that's a, a, a proof that love isn't winning. 
But we have to ask the question, love wins, is it a political statement or is it a divine constant activity that we can choose to participate in? Now, love wins as a slogan has been popularised uh, for two uh, particular reasons that I know, big reasons. Uh, one, it became the hashtag for LGBTQ in their fight for same-sex marriages and it could be said that the love that those people were fighting for had always existed, it's just that suddenly it was made legal and it was given permission to be acknowledged in the open. Therefore, hashtag love wins, do you get it? So that was one uh, very important way that love wins was used um, in, in that sense. Also, and, and some of you in the church will have known about this, others maybe it's not, it was a very controversial title to a book uh, by Rob Bell, a once evangelical Christian, who bra bravely dared to suggest that in the debate about heaven and hell, and who was in and who was out, he asked the question, in the end, does God get what he wants? Does love win? Can anything stand in the way of love in the end? Love would win and God would reconcile all things to himself. Who are we to put limits on the love of God? So that was the question. Love wins or the statement love wins. What is interesting about those two different reasons for that uh, uh, strap line is that some people were horrified that either were acceptable and on both sides, on both situations, it says that while love seemed to be winning, hate was also stirred up and inflamed. Now, you can't believe it, can you? That when it seems that love is being shown to a group, there's a, another group stirring up the hatred, but that's how it goes. So, it is in fact a phrase that goes back a bit further and it's suggested that Mahatma Gandhi was the one who uh, made it quite famous because when he was fighting uh, for the Hindus and the Muslims uh, to, to, to get together and, and to, to be unified when India and Pakistan uh, were separated in, in, in the, you know, the, the, the struggles with England and all of that that was going on, he was encouraged by a belief that all through history, the way of truth and love, in his opinion, had always won. And that encouraged him uh, to keep on with the fight. But one would ask, did love win when he was assassinated by one of his own people? Quite a question, isn't it? He thought he did what he could, but in the end, one of his own uh, took his life. So we are told that love is other-centred, it's self-giving, and it's not self-seeking. Therefore, it always leaves room for the other to decide what it wants, and it works to that end. Now, isn't that quite fantastic? I'm going to say that again. It always leaves room for the other to decide what it wants, and it works to that end. So would it be fair then to say that in order for love to win, it first has to lose. That's a bit of a contradiction, but it's something that we need to think about tonight. So, a question for all of us. Do we perhaps never experience love winning because we're never willing to do what love requires? Nietzsche said, we make promises to love and decency, but in the end we obey our pain. That is something to think about. So, as we move on to talk about these things and, and, and uh, make some um, 
conversation about it. We're going to look at this next clip, which is particularly for the children. I hope they'll enjoy it. But I know that there's much to learn in all that we put on the screen. We see love winning in that, and it's a, there's a film called Sinbad, so it's particularly for, for the boys. Um, Sinbad is set free at the price of his best friend taking his place in prison on the promise of his return, having returning, returned the stolen sacred book to its rightful place. But what happens if he doesn't return? Will love still win, though, if he ends up losing his life? I, um, I must admit that I find subjects like this very, very difficult. Um, I think for the simple reason that something like love is so easy to um, attach platitudes to. Is that fan making a weird noise? Danny's on it. And, um, you know, even the way that I was raised... Um, so many things that could be said about love, and yet, if I'm really honest, when, it came, when it's come to the challenge of love, un, true unconditional love, and uh, how that relates, not just in the context of some prayerful experience, but in the context of other people and things, not always been so successful. And uh, I have met as many, if not more, mean, vindictive, judgmental people with the banner of Christian over them as I have in any other stream or thought. So I don't take this subject lightly in throwing out some kind of meaningless platitudes. Um, having said that, the Bible has got a lot to say about uh, love and loving. Um, even declaring this, this incredible claim in, in, written by John that God is love which has got nothing to do with God loving or God doing loving things. It's actually, it's actually suggesting that the very essence, the very being of God, as opposed to the doing of God, the very being of God is love itself. I, I just pulled a few scriptures. I mean, I mean there's over 250-something, maybe 270-something in the New Testament, but, but I thought these were worth taking a look at. Love never fails. That's, that's, that's quite a statement, and I've quoted it, prayed it, uh, shared it with others in counselling. But what does it mean? Love, love never fails. It, it's, felt, it's felt sometimes in my life, if I'm honest, that love has failed. Um, partly because we are guilty of associating love with what we get in return, and if we don't get as a result of what we think we did, the thing we hope to get, um, we think love has failed, but, you know, well, I don't think that's the case, but that's what it says. And it also says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Here's something else from, from 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. I find this, the way I was raised, this is very challenging. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone. This is love. 
Not that we love God, which I feel a lot of the pressure on my early life was on, on my ability to love God. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, which throws a completely different twist on the matter. And dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another, for God is love. Let me just throw one more in from the Gospel of John. A new command I give you, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you, or in other words, in the same way that I have loved you, is how you must love one another. So if we've got no concept of how he has loved us, then, you know, basically our ability to love each other is going to be a little bit defective. What the suggestion was in that thing about these three remain is that love should be the dominant thing that remains when everything that is just stuff is stripped away. I'm not sure in reality that's the case for most of us in our life, that when everything that is just stuff is stripped away, does love remain or is the way you receive love and the way you give love so inseparably attached to the stuff that you have and the stuff that happens to you, around you and from you, that actually if we were to strip that stuff away, we wouldn't actually have a clue whether we are loved and whether we ourselves can love. So as Chris said, and I like all this again, what does love win? Does love win anything? Is winning the objective of love would probably be the best question. Is winning the objective of love? Is that's what love sets out to do? And, and, and then what about being loved? How does that work? Most of us have struggled with that. I'm 30 odd years in ministry and been in church all my life and I have to admit sometimes I still struggle with that about being loved. There's another question here. Are, are the invisible processes of love more powerful than the manifested moments we experience? Is it that inner working stuff that goes on in much of the struggle that's invisible? Just like, you know, we, we will come into spring and the trees will come into blossom. But, but actually, for those moments of experiencing the blossom on the trees, there's a whole lot of invisible process of love that's gone on within that tree in the wintertime so that you get the burst of blossom. And in that moment, you experience that. But the work that produced that didn't happen when the blossom appears on the tree. Do you understand what I'm saying? So how committed are we to the invisible processes of love? I like something Chris said the other day to me. She said, could it be that love wins you over rather than winning over you? That there's something about love, when real love is active, that it actually, there's something that begins to win you over. It wins the situation over. Rather than us thinking, if I just kind of love and say I love, then I'll win over this thing. That, that's called control and domination when love is much more subtle and when it's invested, the question is, does it win you over rather than winning over you? So, one last thing. In the next clip of Sinbad, I think it wonderfully tells redemption's story. I think it's a wonderful cartoon way of putting another angle on the Christ story when you see what happens, and I want you to watch what happens to the sword of death at the end. Um, we'll find out if love wins, won't we?
So, so what about the cross in the light of the Sinbad story? Got this amazing defining event in history that has been looked at, theorized around for 2,000 years. And um, where there is some commonality, it's not, not always a lot of consistency about the cross and what it means and the sacrifice of Jesus and various theories known as atonement theories have sprung out of that. But nobody can deny, A, that it is a reality that happened, uh, and B, that it has probably been the singularly most impacting event um, in the history of our world. I suppose the question is, was, was the cross the ultimate model of what being love looks like? Now notice I didn't say what love looks like, what actually being love, because, because it's easy to take the cross as an abstract thing without realising that actually the cross itself was simply an instrument of torture. It was, it was what was happening with the one who was on the cross that was the significant thing. And, and it wasn't even about, and I think we've missed this, it wasn't even about what he was doing, it was about who he was being. The problem is when we reduce love to a doing, rather than love being a being, then we think that love is simply an action and we measure love by action, not by its own essence and reality. And then we measure everybody's actions to see and we measure the level of their love by just simply by what, how we interpret the, the actions. And yet having said that, I do believe that real love is an action and not a feeling. It's very easy to, to, to sit in one's seat or just get on with one's life and determine that love is just a feeling and, and, and kind of if you feel it, it's all, you're all, everything's okay because I, I feel that I love that person or I feel that I am loved by, when actually love in essence, it's a verb, it's a doing thing, it's an action, it's not a feeling. But most of us are so absorbed with the feeling of love that actually when it comes to the action of love, we don't know how to act in love, particularly if we're not feeling something that makes us want to love. And the essence of being love is that you love when, you, when, when the circumstance would want to make you not feel that love is the appropriate response, if you see what I mean. And the interesting thing about Jesus, this, this amazing man and this amazing teacher, and who I believe was God incarnate, was he didn't talk about love your friends because your friends are worth loving. He said love your enemies because your enemies are worth loving. A bit like when Gandhi had caught some of that when he said take a small boy and raise him but raise him as a Muslim. In other words, show him enough love to respect where he came from but it's the essence of how you show that love will change the life. See, real love is not self-centered. What do we mean when we say, I'm looking for love? What we mean is, I'm looking to be loved, I'm looking to have love, I'm looking for somebody to invest love, but real love is actually other-centered, self-giving love. And, and that's the thing that changes enemies, that's the thing that changes opposition, that's the thing that wins in a situation, is real love that is other-centered, 
and self-giving. See, I think it also shows that every act of love, in reality, every selfless act of selfless love is a declaration of faith. Because when you love selflessly, what you are doing is you are simply releasing faith because you have no control over the outcome and it's not manipulative in any way, shape or form. And so was the cross, the God who is love, striking the convincing blow against all that is not of love's kind? Again, the way I was raised, I, I have to admit, I don't think it was deliberate. It was, it, was, it was all in good faith and I understood why it was, but, but I was probably raised more sin conscious than I was God conscious. And although we talked about the power of love, it was very evident from the essence of our words that, that, that sin could destroy you more easily than love could save you and that you could fortunately, because of Jesus, find your way to that love. But actually, as I began to look, as I got older, it began to seem that we were saying that the power of sin and destructiveness was more powerful than the love of God and that you could overcome it, but that was going to really have the greater impact. And that's one of my reasons for thinking very differently about what happens when this life ends. Because if, if countless billions of humanity go to a place of eternal conscious torment, while a few frozen chosen finish up in a happy place playing harps and singing songs, then love didn't win. Striking the convincing blow against all that is not of love's kind. I believe what Jesus was doing on the cross was striking a blow against everything that was not of love's kind. Even in his willingness to give his life, he was striking a blow against enemies who would crush him, not by fighting the sword with the sword or hatred with hatred, but by letting the hatred be absorbed into his body because he had too much love to retaliate. And he was eating up, devouring that spirit of hatred in what he did. Was it showing that love is the letting go, not the grasping for? Because if you look at the cross, what you see is not a grasping for anything. You see a letting go, a letting go of this life, a letting go of reputation, a letting go of pride, a letting go of all of those things, that's what love is about. It's not a grasping for. Could it be that love's process of other-centered self-givingness is the forerunner of a resurrection? That you get a resurrection when you let go. You get a resurrection when there is other-centered self-giving. And why many of us never come to the resurrection in the situation that we are trying to bring a change is because we lack the other-centered self-givingness and we refuse to let go because we already have an agenda that we carry with us into that situation. I wonder whether we stay in the space that is love for long enough for it to make the difference that it would. How many times have I said and you said, I've given them a chance, I gave you a chance, well just maybe we didn't stay in the space that is love for long enough for that to have its outcome. See, crucifixion was designed not just to punish you with death, it was designed to torture you with death. Crucifixion wasn't a punishment. Crucifixion was a torture. It was a slow, arduous process. Its whole point, listen to this, this is where it connects with things we've said. Its whole point was to make you fight to keep your breath. 
How did you die when you were crucified? You died of asphyxiation. You died when you could no longer pull yourself up on the nails and push yourself up on your feet to get a breath because the cross would make you do this, the weight of your body, and you couldn't breathe, so you pulled back. And when finally, after many hours, you had no strength to do that, you would slowly die because the breath that you were fighting to keep would be forced out of you and then you would die of asphyxiation. That's why even in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, the legs of the thieves that were crucified with Jesus were broken because they wanted them off the cross before the end of the day and if your legs were broken, you couldn't do that. The whole point was to make you fight to keep your breath. Legs were broken to ensure your efforts to keep your life by keeping your breath would be futile until ultimately you died trying to save your breath. What's interesting is that the legs of the one called the Christ were never broken. And that's because he understood the issue of when we fight to keep our breath. Because we've already learned that breath and spirit are a synonymous word in Hebrew and in Greek. Breath and spirit are one thing. Breath is powerful because breath is spirit. And we talked about how to speak the name of God in Hebrew. It was the first thing when you breathe, you spoke Yahweh. When you, when you breathe your last breath, when you leave this world, you breathe the name of God because the name of God is breathed. It cannot be spoken. It's breathed. And here we are so often in the punishment, in the cruelty, in the torture of life, trying to keep our own breath, thinking if we can keep our breath, we will live. And it's a hopeless cause trying to keep your own breath together, your own spirit, your own means of life. You cannot retain life by doing that. So what I love is that with Jesus, his legs were never broken. But he said something. Just before he died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with this he breathed his last. He actually gave his breath to God. And when he gave his breath to God, his human body stopped living this human life because he had given his spirit away. We are so often fighting to try and keep what we think is life, but when by love we give it away for the sake of another, for the sake of the world, in selfless love, and he gives this breath away, you don't need to break my legs to make me suffocate. I'm going to give my breath to God. And when in that act of love he gave his breath to God, something wonderful happened. See, love gives its last breath willingly to a force bigger than itself. This is love. And in trying to resolve our situations, too often we're trying to keep our breath. It's suffocating me. I've got to keep my breath. And we're losing strength, but we've got to keep our breath. But you see, the secret to love is to give your last breath willingly to a force bigger than yourself. To say, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is love. And it does something. Here's the sequence. It goes from my breath, my life. That's where I am. My breath, my life. But when I give it away, into your hands I commit my spirit. It becomes my breath, your life. And then it becomes to your, your life, my breath. Do you see the difference? My breath, my life. When you give it away, my breath, your life, and then it becomes your life, 
my breath and suddenly death has lost its power and love has won and we have what we call resurrection. And there was a time space between Crucifixion Friday and Resurrection Sunday. The space in the middle, staying with the process of love, knowing that if you have given your last breath willingly to a force bigger than yourself, you can wait in peace for a resurrection that will come because it says God raised Jesus from the dead. Or in other words, the breath that he gave to lose himself was given back to him by God so he could find himself in a new way, in a new form, in what we call resurrection life or the life of God or in Greek the zoe, the eternal natured life that God wants to bring into every situation that we have but it comes from that selfless other-centered love that gives its last breath willingly to a force bigger than itself and then pours that out on others. I believe there is still a place for the prayer Into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my breath. The key to that selfless love is not you fighting for what you want. The key to that selfless love is to willingly give your breath and say, into your hands I commit my spirit. Maybe you need to pray that tonight. I probably need to pray that tonight. It's probably the the struggle. We feel nailed to our situation. We can't get away. We've been hoisted up. Feel I can't breathe. How many times in these situations have I heard people say, I feel as though I can't breathe? That's crucifixion. You got crucified. You got crucified by the circumstance. And what are you trying to do? Fight it. What's the last thing you want to say? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You don't want to say that. You're longing to say it is finished, but something in your heart won't let you go. But in order to say it's finished, you've got to be willing to say, into your hands I commit my spirit. And be willing for you to breathe your last in this situation. Put your spirit away so that the breath can come back to you from God himself and bring the healing and the life that only that breath can bring. I'd love for you to find that. Just, just if you want to do, just bow your head with me just for a moment don't want anybody to feel pressured. We don't intimidate. We don't go for quote results. But maybe for some of you feeling that suffocation. I don't feel that love is winning. <laughs> Look, if it was, why am I on this cross? Might be the very reason that you're on that cross. But the key to it is when you're willing to say into your hands I commit my spirit, spirit, breath, give my, I give my breath. Instead of fighting for breath, I give my breath to you because I believe if I give my breath back to the one who is breath, the one who is love, that that will come back to me in resurrection and I'll come out of the darkness of the tomb that I've been in into newness of life. I pray that life will descend tonight as we pray, Father, and I pray it into your hands, I commit my spirit. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. 
Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash Q Church York. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.